This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 2. We are in the midst of a study of the book of Colossians. If you're new today and we're walking through this book verse by verse, we're calling the series Rooted and Built Up, How Jesus is Enough for Life. And today we're going to look at these opening verses of chapter 2 of Colossians. And they're really all about the family of God, about the church. When we love the church that Jesus died for, what do we want to see happen in the lives of our brothers and sisters in in Christ? When you love the family of God, what do you you desire to see? That's really what these opening verses of chapter 2 are all about. It's a joy to see how God is at work in the life of our church and to see people being baptized, to be surrounded here by uh, the, uh, the, 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 the things that, that tell us about what's coming this week in Vacation Bible School. That's going to be a wonderful celebration. So grateful for what God did through our children's camp this past week and through our mission trip to Coburn. Heard great reports about all of those things, and we'll be hearing more uh, in a couple of weeks from those teams. And so let's look this morning at Colossians 2, and let's look at these first five verses of the second chapter of Colossians. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Laodicea was a neighboring church to Colossae. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to teach that their hearts may be being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of it. And Father, as we pray for our church family, as we work together to to build up our church family, we see in your word today that some of the things that we should desire in our church family, some of the things we should pray for, and work toward in the family of of God, the things that really characterize a a healthy church. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us today through your word. We pray that your spirit would, would help us to apply the scriptures to our lives. Lord, you know where each of us is today, and we ask that you would meet each one of us from now, right at the point of our deepest need. Open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears, open our minds that we would receive from you today and be equipped and be edified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What a joy it's been this summer to be reading a biography of the missionary Amy Carmichael with my two daughters. And one of the things that we're seeing in this book is about how Amy was called to be a missionary as a young girl. And the way that it happened was like this. She was raised in Ireland. And one Sunday, she was on the way home from church with her, her parents and her siblings. And they, they saw a poor beggar woman, sort of like a street person, come out of an alley. And this poor woman was just burdened down with a load of, of firewood on her, her back. And she was, she was stooped over from the weight of it. And so Amy and her, her siblings came alongside this woman and they, they, they helped to, they took the, the burden from her. And as they were walking beside her along the, the street, some people from the church had, were passing by and they were, they were sort of glaring disapprovingly at the Carmichael children. You know, what are they doing walking beside this, this street person? And Amy felt her, she felt embarrassed to be seen with this, with this woman. And just at that moment, she looked up in the, the street, in the square, and there was a, a lovely fountain. And at the base of the fountain, there were, it was like a, a cut stone at the bottom. And as she looked at the stones of that fountain, these words came to her mind, and they were the words of 1 Corinthians 3, and verses 12 through 14, which says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Something changed in Amy Carmichael's life at that moment. She no longer felt embarrassed to be seen with this poor woman. She knew that she was doing what God would have her to do. And as she got home that afternoon, she, she, she didn't know exactly where in the Bible the, that came from. She knew it was a Bible verse. She found it in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. And as she studied that scripture, God really spoke to her heart and about two things. First of all, he said to her, Amy, I want you to focus your life and your resources on doing things that are going to last forever. And I no longer want you to care about what anybody else thinks about you. I want you to focus exclusively on pleasing me. You know, Amy Carmichael had always been a good girl. She'd always been a nice girl, even a kind girl. But she was kind to people because she knew that her parents would want her to be kind to people. From that moment forward, she wanted to love people because she loved God. And because she wanted to obey God. And God had told her to love other people. In these verses, we see the Apostle Paul's love for the family of God, don't we? We see his, his love for the, the church. And in loving the church, Paul is really just, he's really emulating Christ, isn't he? Because as Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus loved the church so much that he sacrificed himself for the church, died for the church. 
You know, in America today, we hear some people who talk about, well, I want Jesus, but not necessarily the church. And it's almost like they can sort of compartmentalize life. You really don't see that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you really don't see any kind of a lone ranger Christian who's sort of out there on their own and not closely linked with a local church family. Because if we love Jesus, then we're going to love the things that Jesus loves. Jesus loves his church. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is heavily invested in his church. When we love Jesus, we're going to love the things he loves, and that means loving the family of God. Now, when we love the family of God, what are some of the things that we naturally desire for the family of God? As, as you pray for our church, what are the things that we should pray for and work toward as we minister together? That's what we see here in these opening verses of chapter 2. First of all, Paul, because he loves the church at Colossae, he desires to see encouraged hearts. He wants their hearts to be encouraged. Let's look at verse 2. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. So here were these believers in the local church at Colossae a city in the Roman Empire, a city, a, a, a group of believers that were living in a, a pagan city with a pagan Roman emperor. They were persecuted. Most of them were poor. Many of them were actually slaves. Where are they going to get their encouragement from? Are these believers in Colossae going to, are their hearts going to be encouraged because they're going to elect a Christian emperor? Well, that's not going to happen. Are their hearts going to be encouraged because they can go out and buy a new toy? That's not going to happen for most of them either. Their encouragement is going to have to come not from natural things, but from something supernatural. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. They were going to have to be encouraged the same way that we actually get really encouraged, and that's by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, I want to share three means that the Holy Spirit uses to encourage our hearts. And as I mention these things, I want you to think of all three of them. Think of a waterfall. Think, think, about, being, think about hiking on a, a hot, humid day and you're just, you're sweltering, you're so hot, and you come upon just this beautiful, gentle, refreshing waterfall. I want you to think of these three means that the Spirit uses to encourage us as ways of placing yourself beneath that waterfall to be encouraged. One thing that the Spirit uses to encourage us is prayer. I mean, I don't know how often you've had this experience, but I've had it countless times throughout my Christian life where I come before God in the morning and maybe I'm discouraged about something or I'm perplexed or confused about something and I come before the Lord and for, and for me, journaling helps. It helps me to write my prayers to God a lot of times. And I can't tell you how many times I begin that process 
maybe discouraged, maybe a bit confused or perplexed about something, and, and within a few minutes, just a supernatural power has flooded my soul. And I'm assured God has, has, has spoken. I'm a, deeply aware of His presence That's the Holy Spirit and how he encourages us through prayer. Another way that we place ourselves beneath that that waterfall of the Spirit is through God's Word. You know, on the day that Jesus, when Jesus is raised from the dead, he meets those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he has this, this conversation to them and he kind of walks them through the Scriptures, doesn't he? And, and after he leaves, they marvel to one another in, in Luke 24 and verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? To be encouraged, we need the scriptures opened up to us. And we need that on a daily basis as we study God's Word in our quiet time. We need that in settings like this, as the Bible is opened up and taught expositorily. We need the, the refreshment of God's Word in a small group as well, a Sunday school class, a small group of believers where we encourage one another from the Word. The third means of grace, of putting ourselves beneath that refreshing waterfall so the Spirit encourages us, is the people of God. We're made for one another. We're made for relationships. We're made for a relationship with God. We're made for relationships with other people. Sin gets in the way of both of those things, but now in Christ, God has reconciled us to Himself. He's placed us together in the family of God, and He uses His people to encourage us when we really get to know one another in relationship in the family of God, where men build relationships with other men and women with other women that are close enough so that a level of trust develops so that you can open up your lives really to one another. And you can share your struggles with one another. You can even confess your sins to one another and pray for one another and support and encourage one another. We desperately need that. All of us do as believers. God uses his people to refresh us. If you don't have relationships like that, then you pray for those relationships and begin to immerse yourself in this church family and especially in a small group where those kinds of relationships are built. Now, there's another application here when we think about encouraged hearts, and it's this. If we're praying for a church where, our heart, where hearts are encouraged, then a natural application of that would be to be an encourager ourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Because of our sin nature, it's so easy to be critical. It's so easy for us to find fault in, in other people. I find myself doing that too. I mean, it's, it's, easy just to, it's easy to be critical while we ignore the massive flaws in our own life. It's just part of our sin nature really to, to do that. Jesus compared it to, um, to sort of walking around and, and saying, Hey, can I take that speck out of your eye when we have a big two-by-four you know, sticking out of our own eye? It's so, it's just sort of, because of our sin nature, 
uh, finding fault comes natural to us. What we need to train ourselves to do as growing believers is to encourage other people, to lift other people, that rising tide that, that lifts all the boats. You be that rising tide. Be that encourager to other people. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Be a grace giver with your tongue. Be an encourager with your tongue. We, we want to pray for encouraged hearts in the family of God. Second, we want to pray for hearts united in love. Look at what else he says in verse 2. He prays that their hearts may be encouraged. And then what? Being knit together in love. Psalm 133 in verses 1 and 2 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head. What does the psalmist say there about unity? It's refreshing. That's what oil was used for in biblical times when they would anoint the head with oil. It was meant to refresh. And so unity is refreshing and unity is precious. It's precious oil. When something is precious to you, it's to be cherished. It's something that you, you guard. It's something that you want to protect. And so the unity of the church is always something that we want to guard. We want to cherish that. We want to do everything that we can to, to protect that. You know, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he could have prayed that night about anything that he wanted to pray for. But what did Jesus spend a lot of time praying for the night before he went to the cross? He prayed for the unity of the church. John 17 and verses 20 and 21. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will, who will believe in me through their word. That's us, the church today. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus not only prays for the unity of the church, but Jesus says that the ability of people to believe that the Father has sent the Son, part of that is going to be based on our love for one another. He says when they see you as one, when they see Christians loving one another, they're going to believe. He said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you what? If you love one another. When, when, when unbelievers see believers really loving one another, then they know that something supernatural is going on and, they, and, and, and God uses that to bring them to faith. And conversely, when unbelievers look at the church and they see disunity and they see people in the church behaving like people in the world, their conclusion is that the church is just like any other human organization. And it's, it's a deterrent to them coming to faith in Christ. So much is at stake in the unity of the church. No wonder Jesus prays for that the night before he goes to the cross. So, in addition to, to being an encourager, be a person who seeks the common ground and not the battleground. Be a person who has a, 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 who, who's passionate about the advance of the gospel and not the advance of personal 
preferences. He prays for hearts that are encouraged, hearts that are united in love. What else? What else do we see here? Paul is, is working for and praying for a church that is growing in their assurance and understanding. If we love God's family, then we want to see growth. And not only numerical growth, we want to see that too, but we want to see growth in assurance and understanding of the faith. Let's, let's look at, the, at verses 2 and 3. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In a healthy church, there is growth in understanding of the word of God. There is growth in knowledge of the doctrines that flow from the word of God. We want to grow in, in knowledge of, of the truth, not just so we can have a bunch of knowledge, because knowledge in and of itself, Paul says, that just puffs up. That just creates arrogance. No, we want to grow in knowledge of the scriptures so that we can love God more deeply and so that we can love one another more deeply and be the people that he has called us to, to be. Theologian Michael Horton in his book, The Christian Faith, says this, it would be odd if we told our spouse or other loved ones that we wanted to spend time with them and experience their fellowship regularly, but did not want to know anything about them, their characteristics, accomplishments, personal histories, likes and dislikes, and plans for the future. <laughs> Would it not be odd if that were the case? You know, if, if, we, if we want to spend time with loved ones, but really don't want to know anything about them. You know, if we love God, we want to know more and more about God, don't we? We want to know more about who God is and his character. We, we want to know more about God's accomplishments. We want to know more of his story, his personal history. We want to know God's likes and dislikes. And we want to know God's plans for the future. Because we, we love him, we want to grow in, in, in knowledge and in understanding of all of those things. You know, and, and I find that today there are so many books on just kind of um, more shallow how-tos, you know, take six steps to this and seven steps to that and, 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 and you know, to, to having a victorious Christian life, you know, here's a seven-step plan or whatever. You know, I think what we really need more of is we need more books on the character of God, who God is. Books like Knowing God by J.I. Packer, which has been an, an incredible blessing. I commend that one to you. Books like that that help us to know who God is in his character because as we come to know more and more about who God is, then what happens is that it deepens our assurance in the Christian life. This is highly practical, highly practical. In Woody Allen's film, To Rome with Love, there's a scene in which these people are on a, an airplane and there's turbulence and the plane is beginning to shake 
and uh, this particular character who's played by Woody Allen in the film is, uh, is terrified and he's clenching onto his wife's arm and she says, hey, you know, you need to unclench. And his reply is, I can't unclench when there's turbulence. I'm an atheist. You know, that's, that, <laughs> that's so true. If, you're, if you don't believe, <laughs> there's every reason not to unclench. There's every reason to clinch and be uptight about all kinds of things. But if you really know God, the more deeply that you know him and his character and you understand that the sovereign God of the universe, the one who's in control of every molecule, loves you. And if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, he has adopted you and taken you as his own beloved child. Listen, when you really get that down deep, you can unclench about all kinds of things. You can begin to be at peace. Why? Because you know who God is. You know who God is in His character. And so we, we want to pray for growth and assurance and understanding. Fourth, we want to pray for growth and discernment. Growth and discernment. Let's, let's look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You really get the feeling that something is going on in Colossae, don't you? And it it was. False teachers had begun to try to have an impact on this particular church. And Paul, of course, is writing from prison in Rome, but he's heard about what's happening in Colossae. And he's heard about these false teachers, and, and Paul is, is burdened for this congregation. He doesn't want them to be led astray or deluded in any way. And, and of course, whole books have been written about what the exact nature of the false teaching in Colossae was. But basically, it came down to the fact that the false teachers were saying to these believers, look, Jesus is not enough. It's great that you believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. What you need is this hidden wisdom that we can impart to you. And against that, what does Paul say to say to them at the end of verse 3? Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't look for anything else. Don't buy into what they're telling you. That there is some hidden knowledge that you need in addition to Christ to sort of fill out your Christian life. No, what you need is Christ. Because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says that we have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 And verse 30, Paul says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, these false teachers are saying, Hey, we need to impart this hidden wisdom to you. Paul says, No, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says here in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Christ has become to us wisdom from God. C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
when we come to Christ, life in its fullness begins to make sense. Christ becomes for us wisdom from God. And what else? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1.30 again. Christ has become for us righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. It's been great over the past few weeks. We're doing summer reading in our family. And my son and I are reading C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Well, Lewis spends the first five chapters of that book talking about the fact that in the universe, and this transcends every, every culture throughout the world, no matter what tribe or culture or language, throughout the world there's this built-in sense of right and wrong, of, of, of fairness and unfairness. And, and we just know this at a, at a deep, unspoken level, don't we? But even though we know that there's this, this law of right and wrong, we fail to live up to it. We, most of us here today, we have high ideals for, for our, ourselves, but yet we, we can't measure up to our own ideals about right and wrong. We all fall short. We, we fall short of our own standards of righteousness, don't we? So what, what do we need? We need, we need a righteousness that's not our own if we're gonna make it, right? We need a righteousness from God. Because our own righteousness falls short. Well, guess what? God has provided that. In Christ, Christ lived the perfect life that you and I can never, can never live. And He died on the cross for our unrighteousness. And when we trust in Jesus, His perfect righteousness, His perfect record is credited to our account. Christ becomes our righteousness when we trust Him. And we sung that earlier in the service, right? That song, song, The Solid Rock, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We need a righteousness from God. And we get that when we trust in Jesus because His perfect record of righteousness is credited to our accounts when we trust Him. He has become our righteousness. What else? Christ is our sanctification. He's our sanctification. That word just means it's talking about holiness, becoming more holy, growing in Christ. You see, not only does Christ deliver us from the penalty of our sin, but progressively throughout our lives as we grow in Christ, He's delivering us from the power of sin. And and the Spirit is molding us and shaping us and conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. That's sanctification. And then Christ is what? He's our redemption. When we were enslaved by sin, unable to free ourselves, what did Jesus do? Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the ransom so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be set free, forgiven and free, and one day be with Him forever. And so in Jesus, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. We're in the process now, as we're sanctified, of being delivered from the power of sin. And one day when we go to be with Jesus, or when Jesus comes for us, whichever event comes first, we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. This is what we have in Christ Jesus. 
John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you come to know the Father through the Son? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you turned from trying to do life your own way apart from the Savior and turned to the Savior and tr- place your trust in Him and His finished work for you? He invites you to come to Him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the family of God. Lord, we thank You that You have redeemed us and that You have, have placed us in this precious church family. Lord, we thank You for the ways that You are at work in our church. We see evidences of grace all around in the way that You're working and growing this church family. And Father, we thank You so much for that. Father, we pray that You would more and more shape us and mold us as individuals and that you would shape and mold our church family that we would to a greater and greater degree reflect your glory before a watching world as we just continue to bow in prayer I would ask you today do you know the Savior have you trusted in him has has Christ become your righteousness, your wisdom, your sanctification, your redemption. The door is open to you today, my friend. The the Savior's arms are open wide. Come to Him today. He invites you to come. You come by faith. Turn from the road of trying to do life on your own and turn to Jesus. And trust Him. Trust. Depend. Rely completely on His finished work for you. That He died for your sins. That He rose from the dead. Welcome Him into your life today. Jesus tells us that when we do that, we're to confess Him openly before others. We we saw in both of our services today, uh, people openly confessing Christ as Savior and, and Lord. I want to invite you to come today. I'm going to be right here at the front. And just come share with me. Pastor, I've placed my trust in Christ. I've never been baptized as a believer in Christ. And I I want to follow the Lord in obedience and, and do that. You come today. Or maybe you're here today and you say, I want to be a part of this church family as we do life together and love the Lord together and grow together. We want to, would want to welcome you today. You, you come. So, Father, we give you this time of decision. We ask that you would work in hearts and lives for those that need to go public with a decision to follow Christ. Lord, for those that uh, you're calling to be a part of this church family, Lord, give them the grace to step out today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, 
I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.